Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. These Russian illegals, they were what we would call sleeper agents. Uh, They were all born in the Soviet Union. They all created fictional stories, again, many of them posing first as Canadian citizens. They would often adopt the name of a dead toddler. And, you know, they have Russian illegal support officers like Vladimir Putin who would steal birth certificates. And then eventually travel to the United States, become American citizens and seek contacts with academics and business people and others. So during during the, the 10 years that the FBI was watching the illegals, what did they what did they observe? What did the FBI see? So imagine I know you're a football fan, but imagine, you know, you're like my hometown New England Patriots and you kind of stole the other team's playbook. The FBI, <laughs> knew, the FBI knew exactly where these these illegals were going to be at all times. They had uh, penetrated their communications, and so they were reading their their covert, not so covert communications. They knew uh, beforehand when these illegals were going to go out and perform operational acts, and so they were able to track everything that the illegals were doing and warn American citizens who otherwise wouldn't have known that they might have been in contact with somebody they should avoid. There was always an ongoing discussion about when these illegals are going to be arrested. They are, after all, illegals and operating illegally in the United States. Imagine that your stream of reporting on the illegals at some point needs to be brought to a close. The concern as well that that the FBI had, frankly, is that they were really immersing themselves into our society. They were having children who were going to potentially penetrate our our government agencies, and it was going to become quite a significant outlay of resources to surveil them all. The Obama administration, rightly so, did not want 
their reset policy to suffer any collateral damage. That was one reason why if you arrest the, legal, the illegals, the last thing you're going to do is, is keep them in jail and perpetuate a bad situation. The way out of that was a swap. There was no other option but to make these arrests, but the way to avoid collateral damage was to allow us to handle it in an intelligence channel and do so without public scrutiny, uh, which could potentially have an impact on our bilateral relationship. Daniel Hoffman is a former career CIA operations officer. He has over 30 years of service at not only the CIA, but also with the U.S. military, the Department of State, and the Department of Commerce. Dan's assignments at CIA included tours of duty in the former Soviet Union, Europe, as well as the war zones in both the Middle East and South Asia. He is widely considered to be a Russia expert. I just sat down to talk to Dan about the story of the Russian illegals another in our series of spy stories. We'll be right back with that conversation after a quick break. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Dan, thank you so much for coming on Intelligence Matters. It is, it is good to have you with us, and it is uh, very good to talk with you again. Oh, thanks. It's a real pleasure and uh, an honor to be here. So, uh, Dan, this is the next in our series of what we're calling spy stories, real stories told by real intelligence officers. But before we get to that story, I'd love to ask you a couple of questions that aren't really related to the story, but I'd like to ask them anyway. And the first is, how did you end up at the Central Intelligence Agency? And how did you end up spending uh, a good chunk of your career focused on on Russia? Well, how I ended up at CIA was really because I wanted to serve my country. Um, I had family who had served in the military. We'd been the beneficiaries of the great freedom of opportunity in this country. My grandfather was the first one born in this country. His parents had nothing. He went to public school, served in, in World War I, and then he went off to Harvard, Harvard Law School, and founded his own law firm. And that really uh, was something that that I thought a lot about as I was looking at a career I wanted to serve my country. And so it crystallized for me when I was uh, earning a master's degree at London School of Economics in 1986. And I was reading uh, George Kennan's memoirs. And that was what got me really focused on Russia. And when I joined CIA three years later, I was just fortunate that I had the opportunity uh, first to learn Finnish and, and serve a couple of years in Helsinki and then to learn Russian and spend two and a half in Moscow. And then I learned Estonian and served in Estonia. All that was before 9-11. After 9-11, things got a little bit different for all of us at CIA. But before 9-11, I was really focused uh, to a great extent on Russia. So let me just ask you, Dan, one more question before we get to the story itself. I'd love, since you spent so much time focused on Russia, I'd love your assessment on how you think about the threat that Russia poses to the United States today. In the big picture sense, I, I look at Russia almost like a Venn diagram. Uh, there is some shaded space, not a lot, but a little bit. Areas which we can collaborate on together, like counterproliferation 
and counterterrorism and look at the SpaceX launch, even space exploration and arms control. Very important. Um, there's also a big area of unshaded space where we can't collaborate because Vladimir Putin is the KGB operative in the Kremlin. And for him, the United States is Russia's main enemy. What scares him the most is democracy, um, freedom and liberty. Uh, he wants his brand of KGB authoritarianism to be perceived as some sort of an equal in stature to the United States. And he knows that if his own people were were allowed the freedom to assemble and, and the liberty and the democracy that we enjoy in this country, albeit under siege at the moment, uh, that his rule, his regime security would be at risk. And so that's why he embarked on a real Russia resurgence strategy after seizing power uh, two decades ago, invaded Georgia, uh, launched massive cyber attack against Estonia, invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea, has interfered in our elections, European elections, uh, and reinvigorated Russia's influence in Latin America and the Middle East. So, you know, while we counter Russia, and that's important, we also still need to look for opportunities to work together. It's 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 a very dicey, very challenging um, diplomatic uh, affair, which really has a great role, of course, for the intelligence community as as well. Okay, Dan, Dan, let's let's dig into the story. But let me start by saying that you're our narrator here, and that we won't be going into detail about your personal role in these events. Although I'd say it's safe to assume that that anybody who worked on Russia at high levels at CIA, as you did, would have touched this case in some way, but we just can't go into details about that. The case, as you know, Dan, but for our listeners, is called Ghost Stories. There is, uh, there is a famous book about the CIA's role in South Asia with that title, but this Ghost Stories is quite different. In this context, Ghost Stories is the FBI code name for a counterintelligence investigation of a group of Russian illegals living in the United States. So let's start, Dan, with, with what is an illegal? Just in general terms, the, the concept of illegal, what is it? How do you think about it? So an illegal is, is the Russian term. Uh, it's a Russian, in this case, a Russian intelligence officer operating under non-official rather than the traditional diplomatic cover. So those intelligence officers, they can't claim immunity from prosecution if they're arrested. Uh, they may operate under a false name or have documents purportedly establishing them as a national of the country where they're residing uh, or from a different country other than Russia. The Soviet Union, uh, historically, they deployed illegals to the United States to steal our nuclear secrets in the 1930s and 1940s. It's been a real key part of uh, the KGB and their successor intelligence organization's playbook. Important to note as well, Vladimir Putin was an illegal support officer in East Germany. And so he would consider illegals to be a key arrow in his own espionage uh, quiver. They're meant as stay behind to conduct operations in case of uh, diplomatic, uh, those intelligence officers operating under diplomatic cover being declared persona non grata. Sometimes they're used to run sensitive operations. In the case of the illegals in the United States, the Russian ones, their goal was to immerse themselves deeply in our society um, and enable uh, close contacts. Imagine them to go way back in time. Think of Kevin Costner's movie, No Way Out, a classic. He was a Soviet illegal. And uh, I would encourage listeners to, to go back and enjoy that movie. It was uh, extremely well done. It was a great movie. How many were there? Where did they live? What were their cover stories? 
So the, these Russian illegals, they were what we would call sleeper agents. Uh, they were all born in the Soviet Union. Many of them went to Canada first because that's a common place for Soviets, later Russians, uh, immigrants to go. So they could create a legend or a cover story of being Western citizens before their onward deployment to the United States. The Russian um, external, their foreign intelligence service, the SVR, was running these illegals. They all created fictional stories, again, many of them posing first as Canadian citizens. They would often adopt the name of a dead toddler. And, you know, they have Russian illegal support officers like Vladimir Putin who would steal birth certificates so that they could build uh, the personas that they needed. And then eventually travel to the United States, become American citizens and seek contacts with academics and business people and others. Did they did they roughly come at the same time or did they come over a period of time? Right. So they um, they came at, at different times um, and, you know, there were a whole host of them and they settled in different parts of the country. For example, Cynthia and Richard Murphy, I'm going to use their their alias names uh, in, in, rather than the Russian, their true Russian names. But they arrived in, in New Jersey in the mid-1990s. And uh, that gave them a lot of time. Cynthia Murphy developed contacts in New York City financial circles. Um, and, uh, and she was trying to cultivate relationships with venture, capital, or this venture capitalist who was co-chairing Secretary Clinton's 2008 presidential bid. Others um, arrived at different times. The most notorious of them, Anna Chapman, uh, she arrived much later. And she was a little bit different because she was a what we call a, a true name illegal. So she wasn't operating under alias. That was her true name. Although when I, I can tell you um, from reading the Russian press, the Russians were referring to her, her uh, after she was arrested as Agent 906090, uh, typical of Russia, a misogynistic uh, society. Those were her measurements. Wow. <laughs> so that's how they referred to Anna Chapman. So do we know, Dan, if they were aware of each other? Or were they operating independently? I know there they were a couple were not aware of each other. And in fact, the first time that they became aware of each other was after they had been arrested and they were um, on the flight from uh, New York to where they had been arraigned from New York to uh, Vienna, where the spy swap took place. It was on the plane that they all uh, came to to meet and know one another. And some of them were more talkative than others, but that's where they all first met each other. It was a network, but for the most part, they uh, they did not know each other. So you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what was their mission? What did the SVR want them to do? So this was the first generation of Russian illegals. And, and so the first, this generation would make contacts uh, and obtain intelligence if they could about um, United, you know, protected information about U.S. business, about our senior government officials. Uh, Donald Heathfield and his wife, Tracy Foley, are there from my hometown, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Heathfield earned a master's degree, which was later revoked from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Um, their son, though, their son would have been, you know, a U.S. citizen by uh, because he was, you know, born here, natu- not naturalized. It, their son Tim was going to be groomed as a future spy, a career. They wanted him to get a job in one of our security agencies. He had just finished his sophomore year at George Washington University uh, when his parents were arrested. 
So Dan, when did the United States become aware of the illegals? And are you at liberty to explain how we became aware that they were here and who they were? The, the Russians, um, the Russian press has claimed as, as early as November 2010, shortly after the spy swap, that there was a defector who was responsible for revealing the information about these illegals in the United States. And much of the press has indeed focused on the fact that, and, and the FBI has, has noted this in their website, the, uh, describing ghost stories, that the FBI surveillance of the Russian illegals went on for many, many years. And I can tell you, as someone who, whom the Russians surveilled quite a lot when I was serving overseas, it's extraordinarily difficult to do it without being noticed. And the fact that the FBI was able to do this for so many years is a real tribute to their tradecraft. Um, but I can tell you that you don't catch spies through gumshoe work. It, it takes a penetration of the other side's service to tell you who they are. That's how we caught Rick Ames. It's how we caught Hansen. And uh, that's how we uncover how the Russians and for that matter, Chinese and others are operating against us. So why didn't the Bureau move to arrest them right away? Why did they take so long? Why did they want that, that 10 years to, to watch these folks? I think um, what the FBI believed and, and probably our intelligence community writ large, but particularly FBI and CIA felt like uh, there was a stream of reporting on these illegals and if the illegals had been arrested, that would have disrupted the stream of reporting. And so the idea was to carry on with the surveillance, which allowed for additional collection, uh, because presumably this stream of reporting was covering not only what was happening in the United States, but elsewhere as well. Um, you do reach at some point, you know, there a tipping point where it can't go on forever and then a decision ultimately is going to have to be made about um, ending the operation. So during during the the ten years that the FBI was watching the illegals, what did they what did they observe? What did the FBI see? So imagine I know you're a football fan, um, but imagine you know you're like my hometown New England Patriots, and you kind of stole the other team's playbook. The FBI, <laughs> knew, the FBI knew exactly where. These, these illegals were going to be at all times. They had uh, penetrated their communications, and so they were reading their, their covert, not-so-covert communications. They knew uh, beforehand when these illegals were going to go out and perform operational acts. Um, and so they were able to track everything that the illegals were doing and warn American citizens who otherwise wouldn't have known that they might have been in contact with somebody they should avoid. They had to be very careful about that, but that's what they were doing. Um, and it was, again, just a, a very closely held operation. Very few people knew about it, but expertly run by the FBI, a real uh, tribute to their professionalism with support, again, from, from others in the intelligence community. So as far as we know, did the Russian illegals recruit any Americans to work for Russia or not? They did not. And they did not have any success of the sort that their predecessors had in the 1930s and 40s uh, when they stole our nuclear secrets. Um, it doesn't mean that they weren't of long-term risk to us, but they did not 
they did not uh, inflict any damage. Now, part of the reason why they didn't inflict any damage was because the FBI was was tracking them so closely. But they they uh, and learning a lot because they were reading all of the illegals' communications back to SVR Center. Imagine the value of that. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Dan. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So, Dan, why do you, in addition to having the FBI watch them, I've heard people say that their operational tradecraft was pretty weak. Would you agree with that? Um, I think it was, you know, I've I've heard people say that as well. Um, I think they were at times lazy. And I don't think they ever expected that, you know, that anyone was interested in what they were doing. Their cover was so deep. How could anyone care? It's a good lesson for intelligence officers because just you got to do what, you know, you've got to use the the best tradecraft you've got uh, and and always assume that if you don't, you'll be running a risk to your operations. So, you know, they, they did make some mistakes and they were caught making errors of judgment. Um, that's for sure. Uh, but at the same time, they were using some fairly advanced communications, you know, techniques back to SVR center. And, uh, and I, I think that if you ask the FBI, would you have known about these illegals? Would you have caught them without, you know, some, uh, intelligence reporting stream, um, tipping you off? I, I think they probably would say, honestly, no, they wouldn't have spotted them. So there's something to be said about that too. So then something, just to take the story forward here, something that happens in mid-2010 that changes the dynamic. Uh, So just watching them is no longer the best option. What happened? Well, there was always an ongoing discussion about when these illegals are going to be arrested. They are, after all, illegals and operating illegally in the United States. Um, and so eventually the end of this operation is going to be DOJ arrests. And there was always a lot of discussion, interagency discussion about when that should happen. And I can't go into all the, the, the sensitive details about that, but imagine that your stream of reporting on the illegals at some point needs to be brought to a close. And that's about the time you start thinking about making the arrests of these illegals. The, the concern as well that, that the FBI had, frankly, is that they were really immersing themselves into our society. They were having children who were going to penetrate, um, potentially penetrate our, our government agencies. And it was going to become quite a significant outlay of resources to surveil them all. And so when that's, I think, in the large sense, what was motivating the FBI um, they've got, it's always a zero sum game. If you're surveilling a bunch of Russian illegals, you don't have as many to, to surveil Russian intelligence officers or Chinese intelligence officers or terrorist threats. Um, and the other thing that, that the FBI considered was that the specific timing was, was 
based, I think, mostly on the fact that the illegals, uh, many of them were, were going to be leaving in the summer on, on vacation. And this was the time, June 27, when they all happened to be in their homes in Boston, New Jersey, New York, and Northern Virginia, when the FBI could arrest them all on the same day on a Sunday um, without risking anyone uh, fleeing. You know, this is is where I first enter the picture, Dan. Um, I had just become the deputy director of the agency in April of 2010. And that's when I was first briefed on the case. In fact, I was briefed by some of your colleagues. They would not even do it in my office. I had to be taken to a special room at our headquarters. I know you know that room well. And then I was involved in the policy discussions in the situation room with Director Panetta. I was a bit surprised that the discussions were not as straightforward as I thought they were going to be. There was concern on the part, and you'll remember this, there was some concern on the part of policymakers that making the arrests could upset our reset with the Russians, which the the, the Obama administration was pursuing at the time. In fact, uh, then-Russian then President Medvedev uh, was scheduled to visit the U.S. in mid-June, and, and this got all wrapped into the policy discussions. Can you can you comment on that? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Um, you know, uh, the Obama administration, rightly so, did not want their reset policy to suffer any collateral damage, and you know that was one reason why, if you arrest the legal, the illegals, the last thing you're going to do is is keep them in jail and perpetuate a bad situation. The way out of that was a swap. I can't go into too many details. I can tell you that I was involved in those discussions. And what I emphasized, particularly to the to my colleagues in the State Department, was that the there was no other option but to make these arrests. But the way to avoid collateral damage was to allow us to handle it in an intelligence channel and do so without public scrutiny, uh, which could potentially have an impact on our bilateral relationship. We actually solved quite a lot of problems in our in our intelligence channel. I'll get to more of that later, but. We could do this quickly and uh, and find you know an elegant solution uh, and and again if if reset was not going to succeed it would be because of the KGB operative in the Kremlin Vladimir Putin's uh, nefarious uh, policies not because of this because of the spy swap or because of anything that uh, that we might not have done as well as we should have so so back to the sit room just to keep the story going here so the FBI director at the time. Bob Mueller and our director, Leon Panetta, with huge support, I should say, from, from Tom Donnellan, the national security advisor, really carried the day in this argument about what we should do. Panetta, a great, great director, he argued that not to act would have been irresponsible and that the bilateral relationship could absolutely take the hit of the arrests. And he tabled the idea of a swap because you guys had prepared him for that. And that made the whole thing more palatable to to the folks in the room. So President Obama made the decision that the arrests would happen after Medvedev departed Washington. And that's where you kind of pick it up here. So Dan, can you tell us tell us what happened on the day of the arrests? Uh, did they all go smoothly? What were these folks charged with? And why were there no espionage charges? 
Yeah, so the arrests all went smoothly that day. Um, Anna Chapman's arrest was a little bit tricky, and and listeners can can read about it. She was, um, you know, the the FBI actually tracked her and um, did a fantastic job of of uh, getting to her to implicate herself. Um, and it's a good story to read. But the uh, the illegals were charged with money laundering and and failing to register as agents of a foreign government. There were no uh, charges of espionage, which would have required, I mean, it's a very tough thing to prove. And I think the last thing that, that the FBI would have wanted to do was to have to present evidence in that sort of a case. Um, and again, the ultimate goal, keeping our eye on the prize, was not to hold the illegals for any longer than we needed to. It was to send them home to Russia and in return, uh, get the freedom for, for four for Russian citizens who were being held in in Siberian uh, labor camps. So you mentioned, Dan, that this was kept in intelligence channels. The the next step in the process once they were arrested was for Director Panetta to actually call his his counterpart in Russia. And um, I happened to be in the room along with with some of your colleagues, and the conversation went something like this. Uh, The director said, Mikhail, uh, we have arrested a number of people, um, as you saw in the press, and those people are yours. And I remember there was a very long pause on the other end of the phone. And then Panetta's counterpart comes back and says, yes, they are our people. Panetta then said, we're going to prosecute them. And if we have to go through with the trials, it's going to be very embarrassing for you. And then there's another long pause, and Panetta's counterpart, Fradkoff, says, what do you have in mind? And Panetta says, you have three or four people that we want. I propose a trade. And Fradkoff, as I remember, did not agree immediately, said he would get back to Panetta, but then he eventually did. And I'm wondering from you, what do you think happened back in Moscow after that phone call from Panetta. How did that play out in Moscow, do you think? I know we don't know, but I'm just wondering. Yeah, I mean, so the Russians were faced with a lot of shock and awe. I mean, they first, all the illegals were arrested, and it was only a day or two after that when uh, Director Panetta was on the phone with with his counterpart, uh, Fradkov. And I think that what the Russians, when the Russians looked at this, their overriding goal was to get their illegals home. It's bad press for them. Uh, they're concerned about the illegals talking. They didn't know at the time that the FBI had been tracking the illegals as closely as they had for 10 years. And so they're nervous about what the illegals might be giving up. And they want them home and they want them home right away. And so I don't think there was much doubt, but that uh, the Russians were going to accede to these demands. It was always a question about whether they would agree to the whole swap to give us four of their own citizens in return. But I think that uh, they saw that there was no other option. And and I think you're 100% right about Director Panetta. I never worked for, for a better director. Um, and he's a very convincing person. He's also a very genuine and an honest person. And it's important to note that he had been to Moscow in May of that year and established a, a personal relationship with Fradkov that he later used to his advantage. So... Tell us what you can, Dan, about the four individuals that we wanted in exchange for the illegals. So after the the Russian illegals were arrested, 
uh, our deputy director for operations, Mike Sulik, phoned uh, his British counterparts and decided that he would let them know that, that there was an opportunity for us to, to retrieve some of their contacts as well. And so we included a couple there who were in contact with our British partners. One was Igor uh, Sutyagin, who was an arms control researcher at a uh, think tank in St. Petersburg, arrested in 1999 and, and given 15 years of hard labor. He never provided anything but open source information to a British consulting firm uh, posing, you know, which was obviously passing it to British intelligence, but just open source, nothing more than that. But Putin used him as an example. The second um, person for whom we traded was Sergei Skripal, very famous person, a colonel in the military intelligence, the GRU. Uh, folks might remember had um, he was poisoned in 2018. He and his, his daughter, Yulia, with a, with a Soviet nerve agent, Novichok, in Salisbury, England. He's recovering from that attack and is uh, remarkably still alive. The other two, Alexander Zaporovsky, who was a, um, an operative in Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, sentenced in 2003 to 18 years of hard labor. Um, and the last was Gennady Vasilenko, who uh, was never a uh, recruited agent, um, but someone uh, the Russian intelligence did not really kind of want to take some revenge against him. He's an interesting guy. He's uh, very tight with Robert De Niro and has been in um, some of De Niro's films, uh, believe it or not. But those were the four we, we, uh, we were able to, to get out of harm's way. So, Dan, once the Russians agreed to the swap, it became mostly about the operational logistics of that. But one of the issues were the kids who did not know their parents were Russian citizens and spies, many of them who wanted no part of going back to Russia, many of them who were actually born in the United States and were U.S. citizens. How was that, how was that ultimately resolved? It was hard on the kids, and the FBI and our government took great pains to ensure that the kids were taken care of um, after the arrests of their parents. Uh, many of them, you're right, didn't even speak Russian, had no idea that their parents were from Russia. Some of them had flown back to Russia with their family and with their parents um, and had taken vacations there and were aware, uh, but most of them were not. They were all sent home. Um, done so with the greatest care and respect for their humanitarian rights, um, human rights. And, you know, the, that's the, the, they were the ones who suffered from what, you know, from, the, from this operation, from Russia's perspective. I mean, this is, the kids were just uh, pawns, I would say, right. in Vladimir right. Putin's um, espionage game. Right. So the spy swap itself takes place of all places, in Vienna. Tell us about that. What was it like? Yeah, so imagine you've got uh, one plane full of these Russian illegals who had never met each other, and there are U.S. government officials on that plane uh, traveling to Vienna. And then you've got another plane coming from Moscow with the four Russians whom, uh, who were being traded Zaporovsky, Vasilenko, Sutyagin, and Skripal. And this was not quite like a Checkpoint Charlie or anything like that, but rather on the tarmac where the Russian illegals walked out of, of the plane, their plane, and the 
uh, Russian citizens walked out of their plane and they, they kind of, uh, they were escorted to the, to their, uh, new planes to, to go off and have a, uh, you know, in the case of the four, four individuals we freed, they were going to have a new life in, in the United States or in the UK. And then the, the Russian illegals all went home. Uh, and Vladimir Putin made a point of spending time with them and singing songs with them and thanking them for their patriotism. I think he did that for, you know, public relations reasons. Um, this was a major problem for Fradkov as the head of the SDR, he, SVR. He didn't last long. Um, I think when Vladimir Putin saw that it was okay, you know, that it was time, he, he removed him, and Fradkov's now running a think tank. Um, but it was a, an emotional moment because I think that um, the U.S. government officials, for example, never expected to see Zaporovsky again and or Vasilenko. And, and from the, our British colleagues, certainly never expected to see Skripal again. And um, when your sources are in harm's way, um, you know, you do everything you can to get them to get them out. But my goodness, when they're in, you know, Soviet style death labor camps in Siberia, it's a, that's a tough place to, to, to gain their freedom. So Dan, this is, this, this has been amazing. I just want to ask you one more question and you've already, you've already made reference to it. And, and that was, even though we had a deal here, uh, you know, a deal to swap illegals for, for folks that we wanted, that wasn't the end for Putin. Um, he actually tried to kill one of the four. You talked about that. And, you know, maybe he's not done yet getting his revenge. Maybe he's not forgotten this yet. How, how do you think about that? I, I definitely agree with you. I, I think for Vladimir Putin, he knows that his own government is wildly corrupt. And he knows that his people are often thinking about spying on behalf of the United States. And so he wants to make it clear to them that if they take that risk, and they think that they can spy and then be resettled in the West, that their lives are going to be at risk. He's going to find them, and he's going to kill them. That's why, um, look, they could have tried to kill Sergei Skripal in any one of a number of ways that left no footprints. But Putin purposely used a nerve agent, so there would be footprints leading all the way back to the Kremlin. And he wants his own people to know that if they do this, that if they betray him, uh, that he will find them and uh, and take revenge upon them, and that is, and I don't think Vladimir Putin would would hesitate to do that on U.S. soil either. Um, that's how he stays in power. It's ruthless, but remember, that's where he came from in the KGB. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been uh, it's amazing story, and thank you for sharing it with uh, with with our listeners. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. That was Dan Hoffman. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. 
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.